What's up, everybody? It is Monday, March 6, 2017. This is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAfighting.com or MMAfighting.com's YouTube channel. I'm the host of this podcast. You guys know me. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Now, I know what you're probably saying. You're saying, Luke, you look like a hobo. This is your ready-to-go-homeless look. You are certainly correct. I need a haircut quite badly. I'll get one and I'll trim my beard. But you know what? Not today. <laughs> She's going to deal with me looking like I beg for change to drink 40 ounces. Uh, okay. A lot to get to today on to, uh, today's podcast. We'll break it up into three parts as we usually do. We'll go over the action from the weekend. Then we'll take a look at a couple things in the middle, uh, some things with you know specific actions, and then take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. So we actually had a couple of MMA events over the weekend, Two of them. I'm going to start with UFC this time. We'll get to Bellator secondarily. I don't. Last time I went in chronological order, I don't think that made a whole lot of sense. So we're not going to do it this time. But um, suffice to say that there were some things to talk about on that card. Now, first, I was there in Las Vegas. If you said hi, great, appreciate it. Actually, no one was weird, so it was awesome. UFC 209. This took place at the T-Mobile Arena, which I hate. In uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, for an attendance of 13,150, not huge, for a gate of 2.385 million, which is not bad, all things considered. Okay, let's get to this a little bit. In the main event, Tyron Woodley defeating Stephen Thompson via majority decision, 48-47, 47-47, boy, when they read that, I thought for sure we we're going to have another draw. And then 48-47. They gave him three rounds to two. Now, let's talk about that. How did I score it? I scored it 48-47 for Wonderboy, which I think I scored the last one a draw because I gave that fourth round in their first fight a 10-8. Um, so, I've had... I've. It's interesting how the scoring works. Let me have a sip of this real quickly. It's funny. Both times, I've sort of leaned either even or towards Woodley. Or uh, Wonderboy, excuse me. Certainly in both cases, I have leaned to giving more rounds overall to Wonderboy. And yet, if you asked me who the better fighter was after 10 rounds of that, like the guy who did the most damage to the other guy without any exception is Woodley. Woodley dropped him in both fights. Um, Wonderboy can't even say he even hurt him. Uh, maybe in the first fight a little bit, but not in the second one. Like, he just never did a whole lot. So... To me, like, I can understand if you scored it for Wonderboy. I certainly did, too, but I'm not really going to stick to it too hard for um, the reasons that we know it's close. And, two, we've been over ju judging so many times. You guys know as well as I do. It makes no sense to really argue about fights, number one, that are close, and number two, that are close with a whole lot of inactivity in between them. And then on top of that, three or C, whichever one I've been going through in terms of nomenclature, um, fights, as we judge them, when the judges turn in those rounds and they're scoring, it's just a rough draft of history. So, you know, it's going to be imprecise and all over the place. And uh, I don't think that fifth round merited a 10-8 necessarily under the old scoring criteria, maybe under the new one. But I, I don't, I don't, so that I don't, when I say I don't care about the outcome, I don't mean like, I don't care what we're up. I mean, obviously you want to have some kind of adherence to the process. But what I guess I'm saying is this has all of the trademark characteristics to not allow you to complain. Disagree? Sure. No doubt about it. Um, and that's fine. And that's actually a pretty healthy part of having a discussion. But to be like outraged or like angry, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think there's really any room for that. Now, I will say this, and I disagree very much with the champion on this. I was there when the champion came into the tent outside the 
T-Mobile Arena they've erected, which I can't believe is a real thing, but it is. And uh, the media got a chance to speak to him. Here's how he defended his performance. Number one, again, I think he is the better fighter of the two. I don't, I don't see how you can really argue with that at this point. But um, he basically said, look, you're not in there with me. You're not in there with Wonder Boy. You don't know what it's like to fight him. You have no idea. You have What am I going to do? I'm going to fight in a way that pleases you. I'm going to lose my belt. I'm going to lose a lot of money. I'm going to lose everything I worked for. for. For that, that makes no sense. And he's right. He's totally right. He has a responsibility to himself and his career and the things that he values to fight in a way that m- maintains those interests and maximizes um, his current position. And I don't fault him for that. I really don't. Um, you know, on fight night, I thought he could have done a little bit more, and I still think he could have done more, which I'll also get to in just a second. But let's say that was the maximum amount he could do, and he played in a way that he thought was the best for him. That's fine. That's totally okay. Here is where I disagree with him. If you want to say I had to fight in a way that was in keeping with my central interests, and I had to fight in a way that I had to be careful, otherwise I would just lose. If I wasn't this careful, I'd lose. That's okay. What you don't get to then say is, well, the fight was entertaining. Right? Like, we're not confused about which fight was more entertaining, Mirsad Bektis versus Darren Elkins or Woodley versus Wonderboy. Like, we're not like, gee, I just can't figure out which one? We, we can sort of naturally sort of say that Elkins versus Bektich was just significantly more interesting, or at least fun to watch. Maybe not more interesting. That's a, that's a bit of more of a loaded term. But it had a more entertainment value. In other words, if you want to say I had to fight a certain way and defend the fight on the grounds of your participation, that's fine. What you then don't get to say to the fan base is, and also, not only did I have to fight safe, it was super entertaining. You don't get to say that. Like you lose that part of the argument, um, and that's okay. We just have to be. You have to be w- willing to accept that. Like that doesn't mean the fans have a right to boo or shout epithets or whatever the case. But you know, if they have a right to say that fight sucked, yeah, they do. They are absolutely well, not merely well within their right. They're correct. The fight did suck. It wasn't entertaining. Woodley, in fact, is using an argument about the. I mean, the way in which he is defending his performance almost, if not outright, underscores that. I didn't do all these things you wanted me to do. I didn't go swing wildly. You know, I didn't even really engage all that much, except in very precise terms, because if I didn't, I would lose. Okay, cool, man. But then we get to say the fight was boring or, you know, just terribly uninteresting. Like, that, you, you give up that argument by making the one you made. Right, so that, that's sort of where I come down on this. Like, you know, a fighter's going to fight in a way that's in keeping with his interests, and those interests might be sometimes fighting wildly. But you know, at a championship level, these guys want to preserve their 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 uh, status, and that's completely okay. Makes sense even. But the fans are right, and they don't they don't they don't need to be lectured about it when they ultimately say, "Okay, cool, man, you want to fight that way? Not only your choice. I get it. I completely get it. But from my vantage point." From the vantage point of somebody watching, it was really dull. It was really dull. And uh, you have your own interests, and, and the fan bases have theirs, and they didn't meet up in this particular case. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's fair to go to the fans, well, I had to fight this way, and also you don't have a right to criticize it. Yeah, they do. And I think there's also an argument to be made like, you know, okay, there's swinging wildly, and then there's doing what they did. Is there any kind of middle ground? That's a tougher debate to have. 
I, I think there is probably a little bit more of a middle ground. But, you know, look, everyone's sort of harping on the champ for what he did or didn't do. Wonderboy didn't do a whole lot either, man. Like, he really didn't. And I thought this was going to be a fight where, you know, if it went to a draw last time, guys would just give more a second time. But it turns out the opposite happened. Like, they gave even less. And if you want to criticize the champion for not doing enough, that's fine. But you got to as much, if not more, criticize Wonderboy for just really not committing to a whole lot. Um, a very dull affair, a very uninteresting affair, ultimately. Um, you know, it, it, the, Woodley sort of said, well, it's a chess match. Not all chess games are, are super fun or interesting, man. Like, some are. But, like, that is it. That it is a chess game is, you know, relative to a checkers game, is not in doubt. But a chess game is not shorthand for a really technical game that unless you can play at this technical level, you can't understand or appreciate. You know, what happened, there is a lot of nuance to it for sure, but that doesn't mean it was spectator friendly. And that's not a cover for it either. Um, I also think that like ultimately this was just a bad matchup for a second time. Like, well, I guess in hindsight, what we wound up seeing was two guys who had a lot to lose knew about it and had tasted each other's might and wanted to be very careful about engaging on it. And as a consequence, just sort of backed off from it. And uh, it just didn't work out for the fans. So there you go. David Tamer defeating Lando Venata, 30-27 across the board. A lot of creativity from both guys. David Tamer, I was mentioning on my post-fight show, just sort of fights like a kickboxer. A lot of kickboxers, when they make the transition to MMA, they take away a lot of their game to either sort of account for the takedown or they just don't throw with the kind of ferocity and I won't say abandon, but you know the kind of... I mean, if you watch these kickboxing fights, these guys throw five, six, seven punch combinations relatively routinely and they do it very, very hard and they just really commit to leg kicks, you know, he was doing that. He just also had the other parts of his requisite game to be able to sort of maintain any kind of scramble or wrestling exchange, and for the most part anyway. And um, So you really got to see a really electric kickboxing game from Tamer. And then from Lando Venata, you know, it was really interesting too. He was countering leg kicks with his own spinning heel kick, you know, or hook kicks. Um, and he was being creative too. It's just the firepower, I think, of David Tamer got him by surprise. The activity got him by surprise. David Tamer was like what I call actively counterfighting, where he was actively backing up, knowing Venata would follow him, and then cracking him right when he came into range every time. Um, so, so there was a lot to appreciate from both guys and learning experience for Venata. You know, I think he'll come back for this. I do think he has a super bright future, but uh, you know, you got to make some calculations. And I think he was headhunting a little bit here too. Not quite enough body work, and, and David Tamer was as well. But if you're going to be first more often, if you're going to put more punches together, you know, you're going to be able to get away with it, and he did. Dan Kelly defeating Rashad Evans, split decision, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. Dan Kelly's great, man. You know, um, he made a point that he thought the wrestling and the judo had um, canceled each other out. I think that's right. You know, he was never really able to get Rashad's hips to turn completely over on any of the throws. Rashad doing a good job of keeping his, um, never getting too far uh, next to the hips of Kelly and getting a hand to plant when he needed to, to not get turned over. So really great job by him. But Dan Kelly was able to shut a lot of that down. I thought Dan was busier in the clinch. You know, neither guy really blasting each other in the face too hard. But Rashad was single-shotting, Kelly was putting punch combinations together, and was able to, at least in that third round, initiate that clinch and really punch a few up the middle. You know, at fight night, I thought my, my, my sense was physically Rashad looked good, and um, he, you know, losing to Kelly, it doesn't say, 
like your future in this weight class is really championship material. But it didn't say that like he looked so bad. You were like, you know, it was like Rodriguez versus Penn or something. We're like, oh God, like what are you doing? It wasn't like that at all. So I think if he wants another fight, I do think he, I mean he's entitled to do whatever he wants. He's a grown man, but certainly as a media member, I wouldn't object to it. I did not think he looked so helpless or something that he couldn't get it done. He didn't look shot to me. He didn't look shop worn to me. So you know, I think he looked um, like he's aged, certainly, but. I think he. I think if he wants to keep competing at least for a little bit with the right kind of matchmaking, I don't have much of an issue with it. Cynthia Calvigio defeating Amanda Cooper. We'll talk more about that in the second uh, segment. She did it at three nineteen of the first round. Really strong performance. This girl came out here. She was. A, she's. I think she's a waitress at the Cheesecake Factory. Although she might have just quit her job. We'll see how that goes. But what an incredible back. People are like, oh, it's a back take from the Anaconda Choke. No, the Anaconda Choke went to the Gator Roll. It's a back take from the Gator Roll. And we'll talk about how she did that in the second segment. But I've never seen anything like that. She had never done it before. We'll talk about how she did it. I went back through and watched the tape. Alistair Overeem defeating Mark Hunt at 144 the third round with devastating, devastating knees from the clinch. God damn, Alistair Overeem. Whoa. Man, here's the thing about Alistair Overeem. Number one, his confidence in himself is not to be underestimated. It's such an important thing. You know, how many times has Michael Bisping been hurt or knocked down and he kept swinging the axe and kept swinging the axe and kept swinging the axe and then he found his moment and he beat Luke Rockhold and he got his title. Like, it does happen. These guys who have mental fortitude, um, they really can go places. And Alistair Overeem has been stopped a number of times and it never really seems to shake his confidence. He's, he knows, I think he inside he knows he can't take a shot like maybe he used to. He is, I think, in boxing range, a little bit chinny. He doesn't have tremendous hand speed uh, or amazing boxing combinations. He's got good single shots. He's got one big, powerful shot. But it's not like he can do a jab, uppercut, cross, you know, hook or something like that, a simple one, two, three, four. But um, he, he's more of a find a moment, great, home the timing, and then strike. Um, but here's what really stood out to me. At kickboxing range, he's got so many different weapons. He can switch stances. He can go inside leg kick, outside leg kick. Um, he can obviously go up the middle. He can do. He's doing that front teep kick up the gut. Obviously, we know about his. You know, his jumping switch head, uh, switch kick, head kick that he landed on Arlovsky. Like he's so dynamic at kickboxing range and in tight man. He's got vicious clinch. Um, he's a, he was the taller guy here, really yanking on Mark Hunt, pulling him down. That one knee, that right knee, and and look at the angle of his knees. A lot of guys, you know, they throw knees right up the middle, and it's powerful. His knees scooped like that to the outside. He has a real ability to like use his hips in real time as he's controlling to find that 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 the angle of the knee was almost like that into the chin. You know, brilliant, brilliant stuff, and then yanking Mark Hunt into it at the same time. Mark Hunt's own face when he got let go from that was, you know, was absolute despair at what he was feeling. You know, this is he's so adept at so many different things. Alistair Overeem is so so talented. You know, I think he's a little chinny at this stage in his career, but I think he knows it and he fights around it. He was really good about initiating the clinch whenever he got in trouble. He was really good about finding space chest to chest um, if he didn't like what he saw, you know. And he just fights in a really disciplined way. And when he does that and you see him pick his shots and you see him pick his moments for offense, you can see how dynamic it is. You can see how many things he can do. He's really, really talented, man. Alistair Overeem, you know, I'm not ready to count him out at all. I think he's got a lot to offer still. And, um, you know, and this new way of fighting that's so smart that he does, I think is really going to take him places. Let's see. Then we move to the preliminary card. Marcin Tybora defeating Lu Luis Henrique. 330, 
346, excuse me, the third round via TKO punches. Darren Elkins defeating Mirsad Bektich. 319 of the third round. This is just absolutely incredible. This is partly why you watch MMA. That scene that, uh, that, um, Esther, oh, by the way, here's my credential. I had this stupid thing on the whole time. There we are. Um, oh, still had Habib Ferguson on it. Look at that. Isn't that sad? Um, that scene that she captured of him exploding with joy um, after stopping Bektich is, I think, to me, going to replace maybe the um, Tony Frickland fight after David Loazzo where he was, you know, uh, covered in his own blood as well. What I mean, what can you say about the perseverance of Darren Elkins? I said this on, on the post-fight show, and I'll repeat it again. You know, if you... You know, certainly we've seen other kinds of bravery, like the, the transcendent kinds, right? Like if you join the military or you're a policeman or a fireman, like, you know, running into a burning building is crazy. But in an athletic contest, in those narrow parameters, um, you know, you just don't know people like Darren Elkins. You don't know you don't know guys like that who are that tough. There are, there are a handful of people in the world as tough as Darren Elkins in this athletic kind of contest, you know? Just, you just don't, you cannot replicate this. You cannot teach this. You can, this is a guy, I mean, you want to talk about grit. Whoa. Uh, you know, everyone wants to mock his tattoos, and they're a little bit mockable. You know, they're not the greatest tattoos in the world, not one of the best ones I've ever seen. They're not going to win any awards on Ink Master. But, um, man, um, and, and, and a real wrestling talent, too, you know, like, the big lesson from this one is that Bektich, whether it's fight IQ or inexperience, whatever you want to call it, I think he has like four amateur fights. He's only 26 years old, and this was his, what, 12th fight, something like that? Where are we here, Mirsad Bektich? Um, this was his 12th fight. You know, so it's a fair amount of inexperience, and he's been a little bit inactive. Two fights in 2015, one in 2016, one in 2014. So it's not like he's been really consistently getting after it, but... His decision to continue to wrestle Elkins was just so inadvisable. I don't know what you want to call it, fight IQ or whatever the case may be. Um, but um, but the other story is Darren Elkins, number one, hanging on, hanging on, hanging on, not giving in, and uh, sort of finding a way to use his superior wrestling talents, it turned out in the end, to get it done. Like I think a fresh Elkins and a fresh Bektich clearly goes to Bektich. But when Bektich begins to sort of revert to what he knows and feels most comfortable doing it was a real problem and like if he's going to keep doing that he's going to I mean he was beating up Elkins on the feet there was no reason to keep doing those kinds of things even if he was sort of technically superior a guy who is perseverant underneath can he doesn't need a lot of time to really create problems for you and someone asked us after the fight we're like you know is Bektich chinny you know I don't know that we can definitively conclude that you can look at the Chess Skelly fight he got rocked real badly there certainly he got rocked in this one he wasn't looking at the punches so those can land in ways that you know can have significantly greater impact but I will say I'm a, I'm going to I'm going to be monitoring that going forward I don't think you can definitively conclude that but I don't think you can say well there's no there's no truth to it whatsoever you know at 26 years old and at featherweight I am not ready to condemn Mirsad Bektich. I still think he's part of what makes featherweight so great. Young, aggressive, super talented. These guys can do so much. I love the featherweight division right now. Um, but there are some concerns this fight after what Bektich showed. You know, like early on, he was just a, a steamroller. And in the end, what he wound up showing us was that, like, 
yes, the things we thought highly about him are all definitely true, but there might be some real negatives that we need to take into account as we monitor the development of his career. But at 26, time is on his side. Uh, Yuri Alcantara defeating Luke Sanders via knee bar at 313 of the second round. This is another guy getting absolutely smashed. Um, but we'll talk more about this in the second segment as well. Mark Godbeer defeating Daniel Spitz. Unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. This fight was terrible. Tyson Pedro defeating Paul Craig at 410 of the first round. Whoa. Tyson Pedro must be super strong. If you've never locked up with someone... Um, and they cross-face you, you might think you can pop the elbow and get out of it. You might be able to underhook and push it down or wrist control or, or something to slide past. There's, there's a lot of ways to get out of something like that. But the point being is, if you've never locked up with someone, you might stay in a what I would call a negative position where you're being controlled a little bit longer than you're supposed to. And Paul Craig, I think, thought, I'm a big, strong guy. I can get out of this. Let me hold on for just a second and watch me do it. And and he was in there way too long. A real, look, strength differential between he and Tyson Pedro. Tyson Pedro was muscling him around. And I think he was very, Paul Craig was very much unprepared for that. and just, Or at least maybe wasn't used, for, used to it. You know, he just wasn't used to someone just wrenching his face away with an elbow like that. Um, and again, great aim from Tyson Pedro with those knees, great control, great use of what the guy was giving you, you know, that he wasn't resisting, okay, keep doing it, and on the ground, really sort of hammering him with excellent ground and pound, Tyson Pedro's only six fights into his career, so we have to be very, very careful about, you know, appraising him as the next big thing, but he's obviously got a ton of ability, very, very strong, active kid, um, and uh, a force to be reckoned with at light heavyweight, at least as far as being a prospect is concerned, and, you know, what? here comes this new crop of of uh, light heavyweights. They signed Misha Serkinov again, and so I'm excited to see what they can do. And then Albert Morales defeating Andre Sukmatov. Split decision 29-28, 28-29, 29 uh, Your fire of the night, David Tamer versus Lando Venata. And then performance of the night, Darren Elkins, of course, and Yuri Alcantara. Okay, very quickly, let's go over the Bellator results before we get to the second segment. Bellator 174 took place at the Windstar World Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma. I don't have any numbers for you. In the main event, Julia Budd defeating Marlouz Kunin at 242 of the fourth round. Bud, uh, you know, Bud's always been a physical powerhouse. And, you know, remember she fought Ronda Rousey, although lost the armbar very quickly. But she's always been a big, strong competitor. And Kunin has always had a bit of a susceptibility to that just to an extent. Um, but you know, now that she's just 35 and older, it was just too much for her, but able to take her down at will pass, you know, just really keep her flat to, to make her do what she wanted to do. And it just overwhelmed her in the end, Marlous Kunin retiring. Let me just say something about Marlous Kunin. There's a lot of positive things you can say about her and what she means to women's MMA. Here's what I want to note about her. This was a woman who across a, a number of different weights, um, Fought the best of her generation. Listen to who she fought, man. This is crazy. Megumi Yabushida, she fought a number of times. Aaron Tohill, she fought. Uh, Yoko Takahashi, Yuuki Kondo, she fought. She fought Ro- Roxanne Motiferi a couple of times. Cindy Dandois. She fought Cyborg twice. Liz Carmouche, Sarah Kaufman, Misha Tate. Um, 
Alex Dufresne. I mean, she fought Alexis Dufresne. She fought so many tough competitors. She never shied away from a challenge. She beat a lot of them. You know, I don't know how you don't have a ton of respect for Marlouz Kunin. You know, somebody who out there when their career is over, hey, in mixed martial arts, what I'm really going to look at when someone's career is over is who did you fight and who did you beat? And she beat a lot of them, but she always fought the very toughest of her generation. And I, I right up until the very end. And I have a, I have a lot of really... Uh, I have, I have I, such, so much admiration for the career of Marlouz Kunin. So thank you, Marlouz, for everything that you did. Um, Fernando Gonzalez defeating Brandon Gertz. I'm telling you, man, this was a, a unanimous decision. 29-28, 29-27, 30-26. Scores are a bit wonky, but I'll tell you what about old uh, Fernando Gonzalez, man. His game is not pretty. It is not super interesting, but he does a lot of things really, really well. His defense is great, and he just had Brandon Gertz working hard on those takedowns, getting nothing from it, and then getting popped with jabs and other kind of combinations throughout the course of that fight. Simple as that. How about Justin Wren? Good lord. Justin Wren defeating Roman Pizzolatto via arm triangle choke at 235 of the first round. Yo, if you did not see this fight, you can check it at bellator.spike.com now for free. You don't need a cable subscription or anything. Justin Wren beat the brakes off this guy. He beat him like he owed him money. It was insane to watch. They locked up, and from the word go, Ren was on him like white on rice, hitting lateral drop, belly-to-back suplex, by the way, keeping it. And this is at heavyweight, mind you. Um, uh, you know, ground and pound. Just, I mean, at every moment, throwing this guy around, blasting him at control positions, and then finally getting a side choke, which he, I think, ultimately finished with knee on belly as well. I have to go back and look, but, I mean, I mean assaulted him. From pillar to post, really great performance, and you know Justin Rand couldn't be a nicer guy. But to see this kind of mean streak competitor, you know he's a really talented guy, and I don't think you've always seen it, and you got to see it in this fight. Great, great job by him. And then a guy who, in the history of Americans who've competed in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, one of the most important figures ever, Rafael Lovato Jr., making his Bellator debut, stopping this donk Charles Hackman at 13 seconds into the first round, hit him with a head kick, fired a knee, and then a second one, and then punches, and the show was closed. May have been a little bit of an early stoppage, but, you know, I think some of these guys they bring in on late notice in Bellator aren't necessarily up to snuff. Cody Fister, by the way, retiring on the prelim card. Okay, with that out of the way, let's do this. Let's go look at the Cynthia Calvillo uh, back take from the Gator Roll, and then Yuri Alcantara's knee bar on Luke Sanders. Both of them are really incredible for their own reasons. Let's take a look at those now. But let's take a look at how that back take got set up from the Anaconda because it's pretty incredible. I, I've literally never seen anything like it. And, you know, I, as I mentioned, I spoke to her how she did it, and she was kind of like talking me through it, but she had never done it before prior to, to Saturday night. So that's that's fun, right? All right, so here we go. Uh, you can see that Cooper is trying to do what's called a technical stand-up where she's got her elbow posted behind her. Eventually, this will be her hand. You keep this hand in front of you, and then you st you plant, in this particular case, with your left leg until you can whip your right leg around and behind you, and then you stand up. That's that's how a technical stand-up works. So now you can see that's how it's working, right? She's going to plant on this, plant on that, and then push her right leg behind her. All right, so there we go. She stands up. She can't get there. Calvillo like rushes her. I'm not sure what this was about exactly. I mean, trying to take advantage of an opponent where they don't have totally upright posture, I guess. But you can see whose you know body position is lowered. So boom, she just takes it and runs this uh, takedown down. Boom. Now here's the interesting part about it. 
This is perfect, right? Right, right behind the hamstrings, driving through. It's more like a blast double than a technical double, and that's what gets her into trouble because what you see here is as she goes down, number one, Calvijo had the presence of mind to already lock up a grip here for the turn. Two, when she, when Cooper drops here, this one of the problems with the blast double. When you just blast double someone, if you can really pull out their legs from behind them, you know, then it's probably okay. If, I mean, if it's a true, like the word blast is kind of important there. But one of the reasons why a, a, a real double, at least the way they, it's taught, is that you you make contact with them and then you change at a 90 degree angle and the reason why you do that is at least in mma purposes not only does it put you in side control but it prevents something like this where look at that leg that's up she didn't really cooper throw this behind her and she kind of got halfway to the turn right so it was kind of just a sort of a confused takedown in a way so what happens is look because she didn't really lift calvijo off of her feet calvijo gets this leg on the inside and is going to use it right underneath the hips to turn, to at least to, to keep the momentum going. You can see she's got this grip locked up here. It's all in one, you know, all in one motion, but this wouldn't be possible. One, if you cut a 90 degree angle, you landed inside control, or two, you had such a blast double that you really completely lifted their feet off and out from underneath them. And she did neither of those things. So she gets turned. And you can tell she didn't she wasn't prepared for the turn, because when she lands, she lands on the side of her ankle. She doesn't land on her heels and then try to like really work for something. Sometimes you can see guys, they get surprised with the turn, but they once they're in midair, they have this super awesome reactive decision-making, and they'll land on their heels and begin to move. She landed flop to the side, almost like a break fall. So you could tell she got caught by surprise on that one. But now that she's down there, she begins to try and turn up to her base, which she gets to. All right, and what is Cynthia doing? She's doing the correct thing. She is heavy-hipping into the side of the single that... Um, Cooper is trying to pull, right? Look at her hips. They're facing this way. That's the correct correct way. I mean, you may, maybe you want to get an underhook in here, depending on what you want to do, but, you know, not, not all that essential. But so far, she's doing the right thing. Live toes, live toes. Okay, cool. So all that is good. Uh, let's keep going here. So now Cooper's doing another wrong thing where she's trying to push into the takedown to get her hands clasped, but she's doing it on her knees. This just sets you up for all kinds of problems, like... It's hard to explain, but the basic reasoning is that if you're crawling on your knees, number one, you're not in a fast, you're not in a ability to create a fast scramble. And number two, the longer you spend controlling on your knees while you're the guy or the lady on top of you is on their feet, they just, you just give them so many more options to either set things up, to break connection, to do all kinds of things. Like, just think about it. You're, you imagine you start in opposite ends of the octagon. I'm going to wrestle you on my feet and you're going to wrestle me on your knees. Who do you think is going to win? I mean, yeah, you might. I mean, certainly it's not, you know, impossible, but it's it's a hell of a disadvantage. You can be on your knees for a second. It's okay. You don't have to freak out about it. But you don't want to, like, really wrestle on your knees. That's that's not good, right? So here we keep going. Now here's what Calvijo begins to do. You can see strong hips. I like, I just like how tenacious Calvijo is in all these positions. So here she is hipping hard inside, facing the right direction, right? You're just leaning everything out to try and break this connection. Plus now she's got this sort of uh, wedge on the hips of um, Cooper. Why? She's stretching her out, creating as much space as possible. She knows that Cooper is going to be reaching, 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 reaching on her knees. So if you put a stop block there, it'll just create a bunch of space. And here comes that hand. Very nicely done by Calvijo, right? 
She's hand fighting a little bit underneath. Now she goes hips down because she needs to create enough space. Like if you're here, we talked about it before, like why the Darce didn't really work with Chael and Tito. His shoulders weren't necessarily in the right position. So now she's going to go flat. That's going to let that left arm come through a little bit more. And then you can see she's going to begin to lock it up. Now here Cooper begins to get to her feet. It's a little too little too late, but it's not bad. There are the fingers right there of Calvijo, and you can obviously you can see her right arm there. So she's beginning to lock it up. Boom, she gets it behind the arm. Now this was a thing. I mean, if you're if you've ever wrestled a little bit, and believe me, I've only ever wrestled in MMA context. So like, this is you know I have I I've never I didn't wrestle in high school or something like that, right? Uh, but I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, holy Jesus. She is super ready to do something here that she could have tried and didn't. Number one, you see daylight here. I'm sure the he headlock is heavy, but now who's on their knees and now who's on their feet? Oh my God, Amanda Cooper, you missed a huge moment. A peek out. She is ready for it. Hand planted, foot planted. You do almost like a baseball slide with this leg. You shoot it all the way through and then you come back to the back. And even if... Even if you don't get it, you might create a break and create a scramble and get back to your feet. You might be able to do something. But it's, I mean, wide open, quite literally. You've got every ingredient in place. And this they're on their knees. You're on your foot. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, I saw this when I was going over film study. And I was like, oh, man, what a, what a totally missed opportunity. And look, man, it's her UFC debut. You're just not going to see everything. Do I think that Amanda Cooper doesn't know how to do a peek out? Not at all. I'm sure she does. I'm sure she's done it a thousand times in practice. I'm just saying it was a missed opportunity here, you know. Um, you got to call it like you see it. And this is one where, you know, the tables were turned just for a second. And uh, wasn't able to do a whole lot with it. But we keep going. Now that left arm is really behind the you know the, the rear delt tricep here. So she's beginning to work on it. And now she locks it all up. You just wasted too much time. And Cooper, sensing there's a problem, puts her, her rear end down, puts her base back down. But doesn't do a whole lot of reactive. Even, even here, she might be able to do a peek out. You throw this arm behind here. Let me just show you what you would do with a peek out here real quickly. Right? If you were here you would take look there's not much of a connection here it's just grip on grip right or grip on arm so what you would do is you would fling this like you would slow almost like you're throwing a spinning back elbow and you have to get your head out uh, to really make it work but even then a, a semi botched one might just break this all apart but you throw that behind you you kind of look up to the outside if you can step that you slide that through and then you use that to step around to the back a peek out is a way to take the back when the person on top of you has a sort of a front headlock that's the way you do it and and because there's not a really strong connection there she could have get it but now there's a strong connection now that's tight and now she's beginning to lower her and she's going to snap her down like let's see if she and you see her turning her hips in um because she's beginning to set up the gator roll so now you have cooper look at that face down on the mat Front headlock, these are the fingers here on the, I believe, the right arm of uh, Calvijo. Now, a gator roll works as follows, at least the way I was taught. You don't just roll to your right side. You roll at an angle. You tuck your head in to that space between their hip and your sort of grip on that choke. You want to feed that in. Uh, because if you just roll to your side, you don't get the appropriate angle. You want to roll in and then come out all the way on top, which she does for the most part. She's going to step up. And what she's going to do, this is actually a cool little trick she does as well. Watch this. See that? So what happens is, you can't see it here because of the angle, but Cooper is creating a blocking mechanism with her left arm to prevent being turned, right? She's she's 
forcing her hand down on the mat and saying, you can't turn me that direction. So what Calvijo does is she scoots up, gets her right leg behind it, and that sweeps it out when she stuck. You can see she gets it right in there. She's going to dig her head into that space. She gets that knee right behind her. So now you can see if you're Cooper, it's a real basic question. What is preventing you from being turned to your left? Basically nothing. She has her knee out there, I'm sure, but that's not enough when the whole upper body is being pulled and turned and outside blocked. Calvijo's nice, man. You could tell she's got real skills. Uh, so now she's turned. You can see that knee is still down. And this is what I mean when I say, what's preventing you from being turned? Here's Cooper's knee down. Tell me if that stops her from being turned. Nope. She comes right off of it. And here comes Calvijo out of the top triangle with the arms locked up. Boom. Now, here's the interesting part about it. This is a weird sequence because what really should be happening is that Calvijo should be on this hip and you'd want Cooper on her right hip. And then you could come over with this leg and grab her leg, the two top legs, to really finish the choke. But what kind of happens is it's a bit loose, it looks like to me. All right, there's daylight somewhere here. And so as a consequence, Cooper's able to get her back to the mat. That's not bad. And she's pushing up on this arm because what she wants to do is come back to her base to negate the choke. But in so doing, it creates everything you see here. Right? So now you see the first time... She tries to get on top, I think either from a mount she was trying to get it, you know. I, I mean, I've literally never seen this before, so it's hard to say exactly what she's doing. But she can't quite get it. Why? Because her head's in the way. She can't roll completely over her head and take it um, just yet. So as a, as a consequence, she goes back down. And that time, Cooper gets to her base like that. But Calvijo this time comes out over her right shoulder. Excuse me, her left shoulder. And the head is not in the way because she can scoot it out. As she comes on top. got Now she has the feet not in the hips but on the hips. And look, she's still got a bicep grip on this thing. That is ironclad tight. But you can see it's kind of high around the back of the head now. So it's tight up here, loose or loose enough anyway around here to keep uh, some space for her to allow her to do this. And then she gets her head out of the way by falling a bit to the side. Right? A little bit to the side. You can see she's not only off to the side herself but like the hips of Cooper are turned a little bit. And now she gets the feet and the hips. And now she has slid from the bicep down to the forearm just to create enough space to get here. Let's it go. And then immediately, what you're going to see is she's still got this other arm from Cooper trapped by somehow. She's going to take her hand out and slide it behind the armpit. And from there, she's just going to, you know, eventually sink a choke and flatten her out. Boy, that is really nice, huh? Um, you know, look. Against a super credentialed opponent, you don't necessarily want to grapple on the fly, but having someone in your stable, if you're a team alpha male member, or you know, just if you're Cynthia herself, just being somebody who can think on the fly and has like a grappling imagination like this, it could pay real dividends sometimes. And, and this is a perfect test case of it. Well done to Cynthia Calvijo. Okay, now let's take a look at the knee bar from Yuri Alcantara on Luke Sanders. So right away, what are you noticing? Uh, not good. If, if you, I mean, if you've ever rolled before, you know there's the super ridiculous red flag here, and it's this, right? This is a hook, and that hook is going to be used, and it can be used in a number of different ways, but this is a hook that's going to be used when he turns, 
and we'll talk about that turn in just a second to bring him with him to attack this leg. That's what this is. That's what this hook universally means. It means this from turtle, and it means that if you're ever standing, you're behind someone, and they try to split your legs with one of their legs, it's the same thing. They're rolling through to attack that leg. That's what that means. And so maybe, you know, look, I am sure that Luke Sanders knows this, but maybe he feels comfortable here. Maybe he feels like, you know, hard, hard to say exactly what he wants here. But, um, but I, sometimes these guys, they roll with guys in the gym and they don't face anybody who can attack them like someone in the will in the octagon and they think that they've got really good defense. And I don't know that's the case here with Luke Sanders. I want to be super fair to him because here's the thing about Luke Sanders. He was beating on Yuri Alcantara in a ridiculous way, which we already talked about. He was looking good, man. The guy's got a ton of skills. I don't think he's unaware here of this, but he just let it go too long. right? I mean, that's just the, re that's just the reality of it. He let it go too long. And why he did that, maybe he feels comfortable because he's never faced someone who can do this to him. I, I don't really know. But uh, here's what I think happened. I'm going to try and, you know, this is the autopsy of a, of a defeat. So I'm trying to figure out what happened here. This is my best guess. So here's what's going to happen. Man, Yuri Alcantara, I cannot tell you how good this guy is with finding the right angle for his hips. He is so ridiculous at it. And this is what I mean. Here's what they commonly teach you in jiu-jitsu. Commonly. What they would tell you is... Left leg is hooking his right leg. So we know that this is the leg that's going to be attacked. But what they'll tell you is if you got this leg in the middle of them, in this case Alcantara's left leg, what you're going to do is you're going to let your left shoulder come to the mat. You're going to roll over it. And what that would do is that would roll you over and it would roll him over as well. But there's a bit of a problem with that. It puts you in a pretty great position if you do it correctly. But if you don't, um, if you're even a little bit off at this level, you know it doesn't take much margin of error for the guy to be able to get out. It doesn't allow you to control this leg. And Gary Tonin is a big proponent of this. Any really good leg locker is. Whenever you go for a knee bar, you're attacking one leg. But you want to be able to control the other one with as much degree as possible. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's a little. But you want to give yourself that. Because if you attack one and control the other, that significantly increases your ability to secure the submission or you know some other advantageous outcome in the contest. Watch what Alcantara does here. He doesn't roll over his left shoulder as is commonly taught. He actually Granby rolls over his right to his left shoulder. Watch this. You're expecting him to dive and turn away that way and roll over. Doesn't do it. Here's what he does instead. Drops to his right shoulder. Look at that nice hook here. He's going to bring him along with his weight and that hook. He's going to roll from his right to his left. and He's got hand control here too, by the way. I mean, this is just so complete grappling. I, mean, I, don't know, I don't know how else to explain it, right? He's going to essentially roll over that, going to keep wrist control. Now, Sanders sees it coming, and you can see he tries to triangle his legs. But the problem is, because he's having this post controlled, he needs this free leg to balance, which he does, right? That's the common reaction. And you might say, well, that, knee, that leg is far apart from him. And it is for just a second. But watch this. Now he's on his left shoulder as he grand beat over, right? And he's going to reach for that ankle. Now he's going he's to let go of the wrist too eventually here. Watch. He'll let go of that to then grab the ankle. And that gives him a fair degree of power. Now Sanders is in a decent position here, you think, right? Ass to ankle, that's a great place you want to be. You want to get your ankles on the ground. But it's not, and here's why. Here we go. We have Alcantara grabbing this knee. There's no knee bar here. But watch what happens. He's going to threaten with this. Because he's going to have his legs triangled underneath. What that's going to do is it's going to allow him to lift the base of Sanders up and get his legs behind him. And 
to at least grab the ankle with a fair degree of authority. Like that. Really get that that the meat of that forearm behind it. Now, if Sanders can keep his weight down here, he's in a good position. But one of the keys to the knee bar, and it's the same as the arm bar. A lot of people think the arm bar is just extending your hips through the back of the elbow, and that's a big component of it. It's also pinching the knees together, and it's also driving your heels to your rear end, keeping everything secure, nice and tight. He's done, he doesn't have a whole lot of that going on just yet, but you're going to see that's going to pay dividends, including something else. And this is why he Granby rolled over. Look at him doing this. Watch. You're going to see this. This is pretty amazing. Uh, he's going to use this to partly lift Sanders, right? To keep nice control, partly lift him. That's going to get, look at this hamstring. He's going to get stretched, player. And you're going to see something here in just a second. He's going to get that like this. He's going to reach the other hand behind it and pull on it like that. And that puts us here. Now, we still don't have a knee bar because, look, the ankle's facing this way. The feet's facing this way. That means the knee is too. And you can't do a knee bar to the side. I mean, I'm sure this is uncomfortable, but this is not a finishing position. But here is the problem for Luke Sanders. What do you notice here that is preventing him from doing anything he wants? Two things I would point out to but one that Alcantara really has control of. Number one, this fence. He can't really go this way. I mean, he can go this way a little bit, but there's nowhere for him to really go. Number two, it's this. This is the key to everything. This is why he Granby rolled from right to left as opposed to left to right. And the reason why is because he's attacking this leg. He's got this leg and his sort of his hips up close to his hips to help him control it. This is preventing Luke Sanders from turning. He wants to swing this leg over the top of Alcantara and come around and face him. But he can't. So he can't turn this way because then he'll go, you know, knee bar down. So he's stuck there. He can't go straight because he's looking into the fence, and he can't turn around because this leg will stop him. He just can't create enough angle to swing around. Alcantara has the better angle. His hips are facing the leg. He's just in a much better position to control here. This is why he Granby rolled. Watch when we go back to the Granby roll. Look at where this leg is the whole time. This will be in a better position. Now, he could have stepped up here, but his weight was getting pushed, right? And he was getting grabbed with this one, so he's freaking out about it, not even thinking about this one. This one needed to step, and he had to come around. That's what he had to do, because what he can't do now, watch. Now what he can't do is he can't really step up and come around, because this one's going to be pulling his weight back. He, can, he, can, he might be able to step up, but he can't create any separation from it. You see, he's trying to push away. He can't really do it. Even if you want to, he was blocked, and this one's getting hooked, right? Literally, like the instep pulling it in. And if he tries to whip around the other way, he's kind of screwed. So he really has nowhere to go. And you can see him now he's on his hands, and he wants to get away this way, and he wants to get away that way. But if he twists that way and it's not quick enough, he just gives the knee bar to him. So this is, this is terrible, and he can't go this way. He can't scoop the heel this way. Because this leg is blocking him. Control one leg, cross yours, block the other. Bro, this is super nasty from Yuri Alcantara. How many times are we going to watch this guy work his hips on someone and be like, God damn, he's good. We saw this against Brad Pickett and we saw this in a different way. Remember we, we did this in the Monday Morning Analyst when he reset the arm bar? And you're looking at it again. Yuri Alcantara is nasty. He is super nasty. His game and grappling is very, very complete. And this thing is so deep, he can't even get a bend in it to get away. Like, he couldn't get away from this if he wanted to. Remember that Lesnar knee bar 
that Frank Mir hit, I was almost surprised it worked because it was so low. You want this? You want their ankle by your ear or jaw. Look at how high this is. Still doesn't quite have the right angle, but you'll see he'll get it in just a second. So here's Sanders trying to get away. He's going to try and push his heel into this to break that so he can slide out. I mean, this is very, very deep, right? There he is pushing on it. Doesn't work, though, because now Alcantara uses this moment in time where this leg isn't protecting the base to drive his hips in and over. He just takes advantage of that. Comes in like that. Now he is on a knee, uh, but he's going to just sort of pull this out from under him at this point. And he's going to come straight down, and there we go. And then the show is closed. And you can even look at his face. He's not in pain, but he knows he's about to be. And he just says, thanks. Look at that hand. Nope, nope you won. You know, Luke Sanders is actually a pretty smart guy because he's a really good grappler, and he's a really tough guy, and he's a really good fighter. He was doing, I mean, he was well on his way to winning. Uh, he made a couple, just, you know, he let that leg get tossed in between. But Alcantara, Granby rolling right to left instead of left to right when he was on that left side giving himself space to be able to control one leg, or I should say attack one leg and control the other. Man, Yuri Alcantara is not to be trifled with on the ground. And last but certainly not least, let's take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. Uh, there is a UFC event, and at least that the main event is concerned, not a terrible one. Uh, this will be UFC Fight Night. What's the number on this one? 106. Or UFC Fight Night Belfort versus Gastelum. This will take place at the, forgive my pronunciation, Centro de Formação Olímpica de Nordeste, do Nordeste, in Fortaleza, Brazil. Uh, Fortaleza, Brazil. This will be headlined by Vitor Belfort taking on Kelvin Gastelum at middleweight. Then you have in the co-main event Shogun versus John Volante. Lightweight you have Edson Barboza versus Benil Dariush. Then you have a flyweight bout between Juicier Formiga and Ray Borg. That should be a hell of a fight. Uh, Betch Cohea is back in action against Marion Renault. And then Alex Cowboy Oliveira opens up the show against Tim Means. On the prelim card, Massa Renduba. Francisco Trinaldo taking on Kevin Lee. That's fun. Go to Fredo Pepe. He's going to take on Kyle Bochniak. Sergio Moraes taking on Davi Ramos. Davi Ramos, man, you want to talk about a nasty grappler. This is the guy who won ADCC 15 against Lucas, um, was it Lucas Lepre? I think it was Lepre. I'll have to double check. Anyway, he hit a flying arm bar while the competitor, if he was either, it was either Leitch or Lepre in sitting guard. Who did he do that to? Let me look up that real quick. Yeah, it was Lucas Lepre. Um, it, it, unbelievable grappler. And very, very exciting addition to uh, to this card. Uh, Michelle Prezerich taking on Josh Berkman. Uh, will be the end of your Fox Sports card. And then on your prelim card, Hani Jason taking on Jeremy Kennedy. Hani Yaya taking on Joe Soto. That's fun. And then Gareth McClellan taking on Paolo Henrique Costa. That'll be on Fox Sports 1 and probably painful to watch. Okay, if you have any questions, email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. I'll see you guys on Wednesday for the live chat. And I appreciate you watching today. Give it a thumbs up, comment, share it around, subscribe to MMA Fighting on YouTube. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the fights.